This episode is brought to you in part by Regent College, Vancouver, Canada. Experience God's call to a life more abundant with our one to two week summer courses. Sign up today at rgnt.net slash summer. You know, I just wailed. And then finally, once I got, you know, the torrent of that out, I just began to say, God, I don't understand. I don't understand. Why did you make me do this? I only did this because I thought this was what you wanted me to do. I wouldn't have done this if I'd known that, you know. And I just began to lament. I didn't even know what lamenting was then. But I just lament. How could this happen, God? This is Where You're From, a podcast for those who believe it's important to stop and listen before we speak. Join us as we ask another Christian thought leader where you're from and discover how their life experiences and expertise, even if we may disagree with something they say, offer us an important perspective that's worth thinking about. Hey y'all, it's me, Rasul Berry. Thanks for joining me again on Where You're From. This week, I'm talking with Dr. Debbie Turner-Bell. Her story and her faith are both illuminating and inspiring. From her childhood to her rigorous commitment to excellence and hard work that culminated in being crowned Miss America, she has seen a lot, done a lot, and shared a lot with me. Prior to talking with her, I never knew beauty pageants could be so brutal, life-changing, and sometimes burdensome. A quick bio about Dr. Turner-Bell. She has done it all. In addition to being the 1990 Miss America winner, she has succeeded as a veterinarian, author, speaker, pastor, marathon runner, and more. Also, you've got to check out her book, Courageous Faith, A Lifelong Pursuit of Faith Over Fear. For more info on her, check out our show notes or visit our website at whereyoufrom.org. That's where, Y-A, from, O-R-G. Please join me as I ask Dr. Debbie Turner-Bell, where are you from? I was born in Honolulu, Hawaii. Mm-hmm. My father was in the military. We lived six different places the first five years of my life. Mm. Ended up in Jonesboro, Arkansas, which I grew up mainly there. So we'll say Arkansas. Okay, there we go. So <laughs> already we've learned some layers to your story. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about your dad who was in the military. Yes. Amazing guy. My father was the son of a high school principal and a high school teacher, home economics and French, in Jonesboro, Arkansas. And it was the time and the type of community where truly a village we were raising those kids, particularly the kids of color. Mm -hmm. He grew up, of course, in the segregated South. He went to the all-black George Washington Carver High School. But his parents, who were, you know, well-educated pillars in the community, wanted more for him. Mm. And to make the long story short, he became one of the first three African-American students to go to school at Arkansas State University. One of those students didn't finish, but he and Walter B. Strong did graduate. So he was one of the first two to graduate from ASU. And then 15, 20 years later, he came back and he integrated the staff, the faculty at Arkansas State. He was the first African-American professor on faculty at ASU. So, you know, he has such a rich history and he downplays all of that. And, you know, he just thinks it's no big deal, but just a phenomenal man, phenomenal father. And so grateful to call him my dad. And it sounds like a incredible person. I mean, to think about 
being a trailblazer, not just once, but twice and probably more over many times than that. And it's also a trip to think like there's still people you can walk and talk to who can remember segregation and remember breaking those barriers and being the first. Absolutely. That's beautiful. So, okay, that's one half of the parental unit. Tell us about your mother. My mother was equally amazing. She grew up as an adopted only child to her biological aunt and uncle, but she actually was the oldest of nine children. She has eight brothers and sisters biologically, but her aunt, my grandmother's sister, took her in at a difficult time for my aunt. Mm. And so she was raised as an only child by two loving parents who, you know, gave her as much as they could at that time in society. And she is one of the most kind, compassionate, generous people I've ever met in my life. She's now with the Lord. But when she gave her heart to the Lord as a teenager and then rededicated her heart to the Lord as a young adult after my mom and dad split up, she raised my sister and I in the fear and admonition of the Lord. We went to church every time the doors flew open, (laughs) every prayer meeting, shut in, intercessory prayer, tent revival, you name it. We were there. Mm. And I didn't like it. I didn't understand it as a child. But, oh, man, am I grateful for it now. But what I love to say about my mom, she was not only just a believer in God, but she had an active living faith. She was a prayer warrior. And she believed the Bible. She took the Bible at its word. And that's how we lived. And as a single parent who was not equipped to be a single parent, she didn't grow up in a single parent home. Mm -hmm. She depended and trusted God to provide and make up the slack, if you will, as she uh, struggled to raise the two of us. Mm -hmm. And I watched her as she's raising two girls by herself, go back to college, get her college degree, get her master's degree. Mm -hmm. Uh, She had a phenomenal career that was recognized by First Lady Nancy Reagan as one of the premier programs that she directed in the country. So she's very successful in her own right. But we also took in what I called strays, you know, people who didn't have family, didn't have a support system. They came to our house for the holidays. She made us go and help the elderly in our community, you know, clean the bathrooms Mm. or clip their toenails, you know, because they were no longer able to do it. And so, you know, what I learned about community service and about loving others and loving the least of these, I learned from my mother, Mm -hmm. who was just a dynamic, vibrant woman in her own right. She was another one. She lit up her room when she walked in. So she really was a force of nature. Wow. So you had two forces of nature at home. (laughs) And, you know, you mentioned her faith and how dynamic it was. You know, what are your earliest memories of when that became a personal faith for you? Oh, okay. That's an easy question to answer. First of all, I remember when I got into first grade and back in those days, I'm old enough to remember when kids didn't learn to read until second grade. They learned the alphabet in the first grade. Mm -hmm. And I remember when I started second grade, my mother every day would ask me after school, can you read a full sentence? And, you know, every day, no, not yet, not yet. And I remember that day at school when I learned how to read a C spot run, run, spot, run all by myself. And I lived two blocks away from my elementary school and I went flying, running home to tell my mom because I thought I was going to get a prize or, you know, reward. (laughs) You know, I thought I was finally going to get that pony I wanted. And I went running home the whole way. Mommy, I can read. I can read. 
and I'm breathless waiting on some reward I'm going to get. And I remember she sat me down at our kitchen table and there was a book in front of her that I didn't notice at first. And she said, Debbie, you will not get to heaven on my apron string. Mm. You will have to know God for yourself. You will have to pray on your own. You will have to read the Bible and you'll have to learn how to hear the voice of God for yourself. And she walked me at seven years old through a prayer of salvation. She asked me if I was ready to accept Jesus as my Lord and Savior. And I told her yes, and she led me through a prayer of salvation. And then she pushed that book across the table that up to this point I hadn't even noticed, and it was a Bible. It was my first Bible. And Mm. so that's how I came to know the Lord. But I was seven. You know, I was a seven-year-old Christian. So, you know, that meant that, you know, I tried my best to do well, but, you know, also tried not to get caught when I wasn't doing well. (laughs) But it was really when I rededicated my heart to the Lord at 15. Mm-hmm. And that's really when my faith, separate from my mom's, mm-hmm. began. But I came to a point where I realized I was leading a double life. You know, I was this on-fire Christian on the weekends when we were at church all weekend. But during the school day, during the week, I was so terrified that people would think I was a holy roller or a Bible thumper that I put my Christianity in a closet during the week Mm. and realized that people who saw me every day didn't know I was a Christian. And I went to a youth revival, and I can't even remember what the preacher preached on, but I remember him saying, if you're ashamed of God before men, that Jesus would be ashamed of us before God. And that convicted me. And I went up when there was an altar call, and I made a promise to the Lord that never again would someone get to know Debbie without also knowing about Jesus in Debbie. Mm. And it changed my life. It changed the trajectory of my life. Yeah, that's amazing to make that type of commitment. And you mentioned being in high school. What were some of the activities that you got involved in? Oh, my goodness. First of all, I was a snare drummer in the marching band and played timpani in in concert season. So I was a percussionist. But I also was involved in a lot of stuff. I was, you know, on the student government and in a lot of service organizations. I was a good student. But what I did struggle with, and maybe you can identify with this as well, Rasul, I desperately wanted to be popular. Mm. I wanted everybody to like me. Yeah. And that's kind of where that you know, closet Christianity came from, because mm-hmm. I, didn't, I didn't want anybody to reject me. And especially those first two years of high school, I would change, literally, depending on the group of people I was around. Mm. My sense of humor, or even how I dressed, or what I would say, shifted depending on the group I was with. And I was a chameleon because I changed my appearance based on my environment. And that was miserable. I was constantly afraid that somebody was going to find me out. Mm. And it was that that led to that rededication to the Lord and embrace just being Debbie. You know, whoever God created Debbie to be, let's discover that and let's be that. Got it. And you mentioned in the book getting involved with something called Miss Black Teenage World. Yes. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, that was my very first pageant of all. And uh, one of the community leaders in the African-American community, her name is Sister Liz, that's what we called her, but Liz (laughs) Howard, always was putting together programs and activities to keep particularly the kids of color off the street and out of trouble. And then one day decided to put on a local Miss Black Teenage World and recruited all the young girls that were eligible 
by age to be in it. And we'd get together every week and, you know, learn poise and how to walk and, you know, whatever else we did. It really was like community building, really, Mm -hmm. now looking back at it. And so I got involved in that just simply because I did the stuff that Sister Liz led. I was a big fan of hers. Mm -hmm. and She's like a second mother. And it was fun. And I did not win. I was first runner up. That was the first of a string of first runners up for me in pageants. But I appreciated that entry, if you will, into the pageant world because of the way Liz directed it. It really was around relationship building, how to help and support one another. But the emphasis was more about being helpful, being a good citizen in this community, Mm. right? And yes, setting goals and working hard to achieve those goals. But they were really set up more to teach the participants how to compete against themselves, not compete against each other. So there was no motivation for playing mind games or trying to trip up someone else. We were all trying to be our best, but also helping each other try to be their best as well. And it was very cool to do it with other girls of color, you know, so I didn't have the pressure of conforming Mm -hmm. to a Western European standard of beauty in that pageant. Mm -hmm. Although that would change very quickly once I got involved in the Miss America system. Okay. So you experience this, being first runner up, somebody sees something of potential because you end up getting encouraged to do another one that's even bigger. Tell us about that. Yeah. So I was not the typical pageant girl. I knew from a young age I wanted to be a veterinarian. And although I was not a tomboy, I wasn't also a frilly girl. I didn't play in my mother's makeup. I love to help my cats give birth to their kittens. So that was the kind of kid I was. So when I was in the Miss Black Teenage World, that was more like, to me, community service. This Mm -hmm. is what we did. And then because of that, I was invited to be in the Junior Miss program. And that was very similar to the first one in that it emphasize community service and building community, that kind of thing. One of the judges in the Junior Miss pageant, though, was a local director in the Miss America system. She recruited me and other girls to compete in her pageant. I wasn't interested in the least Mm -hmm. because I didn't see myself as a pageant girl. So she was persistent and she finally said the Miss America program is the largest source of scholarship for women in the world. If you can win a local, go to state, win state and go to Miss America, you can win tens of thousands of dollars in scholarship money. Mm. Well, at that point, dollar signs appeared in my eyes. My ponytail stood up. I'm like, (laughs) I'll do it. Where do I sign up? Because I was growing up in a lower middle class, single parent home. Mm. I knew from the jump that my family could not afford the education education that I wanted, I saw the Miss America system as a means to an end. Mm -hmm. And that's how I first got involved. And so to get to your question, at first, I just wanted to win scholarship money where I could. And so, you know, if I got runner up or won the talent preliminary or got Miss Congeniality, which I rarely did, (laughs) (laughs) all of that had scholarship money attached to it. Mm -hmm. And so as long as I was making some scholarship money, I was happy. Mm -hmm. And about three years or so into it, someone said to me, Debbie, if you would actually get serious and apply yourself, you could win this whole thing. Hmm. And so I did began to really dedicate myself to it and really learn the system. So my mother would make my outfits or I would rent them from the local gown shop. 
And I would watch the news and read news periodicals and take notes. And I'd ask my mother's friends to do mock interviews. And so we just kind of scraped together what we were able to do to try to get me ready. And because I couldn't afford going to charm school or getting modeling lessons, I would put on my high heels and we had a full length mirror and I'd take it down to the basement and put it at one end of the room. And I would practice walking in those high heels, trying to develop my grace and poise going back and forth. I would do that for hours, Mm -hmm. you know, trying to get that pageant walk, you know, Mm -hmm. down just right. And I started placing higher in pageants. Okay, let me just interrupt for a sec cuz I Please. I'm curious just to rewind a little bit, you okay. know, you you go to the revival, you experience this sense of, you know, I'm not going to live a double life, like I'm just going to be me. Uh-huh. I would imagine in most people's discipleship plan that does not necessarily include pageants, right? In terms of the best way to live that out. That would seem to be a place where it's challenging to maybe live out your faith. I'm curious about how those two things kind of coincided. Yeah, very intuitive question. So, yes, I grew up in the church and my mother grew up in what they called the sanctified church. Holiness. Yes. The holiness church. That's right. Church of God in Christ. Yes. And so my mother allowed us to wear pants and obviously you wore makeup to be in pageants. And so for the sanctified friends, they didn't understand that at all. And I can remember being rebuked and chastised Mm. at the holiness church Mm. about being in pageants because a part of the Miss America system is wearing a swimsuit on stage and they were just convinced I was going to hell because Mm -hmm. of that but my mother pointed out Esther Mm. in my opinion the very first pageant winner of all time that's true and for the Bible scholars you know Esther was a young virgin in Persia and she went before the king who was looking for a new queen spent a year in beauty treatments then went before the king and she was chosen as queen and because of that position that God put her in she was able to save a whole nation of people and my mother said well if Esther could become queen after it was basically a beauty pageant, then surely God could have purpose in this. And so my mom kind of just ran interference for me. And, you know, they would chatter with my mom, you know, how can you let her do this? And, you know, my mother would say, she's in God's hands Mm -hmm. and God's will will be done. And, you know, she just kind of buffered me and let me do, you know, what I was supposed to do. So I didn't really have to answer to the people. But I prayed about it because I didn't want to be in sin. I didn't want to be of the world, you know, and it was through a lot of prayer and fasting, quite frankly, that I came to a conclusion that this was a part of God's will. I didn't know what he was going to do with it. Mm. I didn't know why I was in pageants. I still wanted to be a veterinarian. So what does a pageant have to do with that? Right. Right. So that courageous faith, even seeing seeds of that, even at that teenage time period, you know, is really interesting. And th- the other thing I'm curious about, where do you think that love of like caring for animals came from? Oh, that came from Gussie Turner, my mother, <laughs> okay. for sure. She had just a compassionate heart, couldn't stand to see anything suffer, including animals. And so it was a regular part of our childhood that she would stop and pick up any abandoned, abused, half roadkill, anything Mm -hmm. and bring it back home. And we would rehabilitate it and nurse it back to health. And if it was wild, we'd release them back in the wild. If it was a cat, then the cat became part of our family. Wow! So we had a lot of pets growing up. At one time, we had as many as 26 cats. Not counting the dogs, 
frogs, turtles, and parakeets <laughs> okay. that I went through a phase yes. of. So we had a lot of pets. Got it. So yeah, it came from my mother. And then by nature, I love science. I'm mm. a STEM kid. And so in my mind, the marriage of a love of science and love of animals was veterinary medicine. And mm. that's how I Got decided it. I wanted to be a veterinarian. Yeah. And I mean, so much so that you're seeing this pageant circuit as really a means to an end. Absolutely. How common is that among the participants in these pageants? I would say the vast majority of the participants in the Miss America system Mm -hmm. are those who are in the system for an educational goal because of the way the program is set up. And doggone it, you know, the amount of work and effort and sacrifice it takes to compete, you really got to want that scholarship money. Otherwise, it's not worth it. I mean, and it makes sense when you start to understand some of the things that you described went into the process. You talked about reading the news. Like, why was that so important? And what was that preparation process like? because that private job style interview that's a part of the competition was rigorous Mm -hmm. and the judges would ask the contestants or ask me about anything Mm -hmm. about current events social issues and what our perspectives and opinions were and so I almost treated it like a a college class Mm -hmm. and would just keep copious notes of what was happening in the world around me so I could use that to frame my own opinions and what I thought about it in preparation for that interview. Gotcha. What will be the other behind the scenes type of preparation or training that folks might not just know that this is part of the process? They wanted a representative who was knowledgeable and had convictions and passions. So in order to be prepared for that process, I did hours and hours of what we called mock interviews, mm-hmm. where my mom or the pageant director would assemble a panel of community people, professors and business leaders and whatever, and they would critique me. This was a good answer. That one was not. You need to follow up. I noticed you slumped. You need to make sure you're sitting up straight. Keep your legs together. I mean, everything. And then we would watch the video back Mm -hmm. so I could see what they had expressed to me. And I did that countless times preparing for competing. And then, of course, because at that time, the talent portion was 50% of the total score. So I practiced three hours every day, Mm -hmm. six days a week. I took private lessons on the marimba to be the best musician that I could be to prepare for competing in the pageant. Okay, and what's a marimba? (laughs) <laughs> you know what a marimba is. You just don't realize you know. Okay. A marimba is a larger version of a xylophone. Got it. And the way I like to say it is a marimba is to a xylophone, but a cello is to a violin. Got it. So, wow. yeah, bigger, yeah. deeper yep. pitched instrument. Okay. So you got all of those things going on. And as a 21-year-old, you're now entering into the Miss Arkansas pageant Mm -hmm. again. Mm -hmm. What's your mindset? How confident are you coming into this process? Yeah. So by the time I come back at 21, I'd already been at Miss Arkansas two years before. So I figured... I know the system. I got this down, you know, and I have all these processes in place to have me prepared. And 
Mind you, all along the way, I'm praying about it. Mm -hmm. And because my mother was the woman that she was, we had a Bible study in our home my entire childhood. At that time, it was called the Thursday Night Share Group. Mm -hmm. We had something called the Prayer Chair. So at the end of the Bible study part, my mother would get one of our dining room chairs and put it in the middle of the living room. And people that had prayer requests or needs would sit in the prayer chair and everybody would gather around. Some would lay hands on that person and they would pray over them. So before every pageant, my mother would put me in the prayer chair and I'd get prayed over Mm -hmm. in preparation for the pageant. And so, you know, not only am I working hard for it, I've been prayed over. And sometimes, you know, people would say, I believe God is going to have you win. And so I had these, you know, quote unquote, prophetic words. And so I went in thinking, okay, this is it. I'm going to win. I've worked for it. I prayed about it. God has said I'm going to win through these prophecies. This is it. And I don't think I was arrogant about it, but I went in confident and did really well and got first runner up. Wow. And it was it was disappointing. It was really disappointing. Mm-hmm. And I already knew that night when I got first runner up, I'll try again next year. And I did. Went another local, went back to Miss Arkansas pageant for the third time. And this time I have more confidence. And I even in that year spent more time before the Lord saying, God, is this really your will? Do you really have purpose in this? Because I don't want to do it if it's not of you. And I you know, got that certainty in my spirit. This is what I was supposed to be doing. So this time I go back less confident in myself and my preparation. Now the confidence came from my spirit. Mm. This has purpose. So I competed and I was convinced I was going to win. I was the crowd favorite. Every time I stepped on the stage, crowd went wild and it gets to the end of the evening and they begin to call runners up. And in previous years, I would silently pray standing there on stage, you know, God, let me win. But this year it was different. I just wanted God's will. And I really did. I was really sincere about that. And so as they begin to call the runners up, I prayed this time instead of God, let me win. I prayed, God, your will be done. And they called somebody else's name. And I'm like, phew, thank you, Jesus. And then they got the third runner up and I did the same thing. Your will be done. And the second runner up and then the first runner up. But I began to pray Mm -hmm. and I said, God, your will be done. And then by that time, the MC said, ladies and gentlemen, your first runner up to Miss Arkansas is Miss Northeast Arkansas, Debbie Turner. Mm. And my heart sank. So I had to maintain my composure and, you know, I smiled and they bring you the silver tray as a runner up. I took my little silver chip tray and I looked over at the judges and I thanked them. And then they, you know, they hustle me out of the way because now they got to get to the winner. But when they called my name, the whole audience gasped. Wow. And I imagine, too, it's just like you're stunned. You're processing a million things at once because, you know, you go from not knowing to now hearing your name yes. to then being like, oh, man, that does mean that I've won something, but I didn't win the thing that I was yeah. really hoping for. And then on top of that, to hear an audible gasp in the audience and knowing that everyone was thinking the same thing. 
so they usher you off yes. stage, mm-hmm. and then what happens? Because I think that's probably when the emotions start to catch up. Well, so I had to keep my composure for a while. And I remember my family coming up on stage. And Rasul, you would have thought they were at a wake coming to view the dead. Mm. You know, just long faces and shell-shocked and disappointed and, you know, tears in some of my friends' eyes because we all thought I was going to win. Mm. And I remember my dad saying, you know, congratulations, you're our Miss Arkansas, you know, and I want to thump him on his brown head. You know, that didn't get me no scholarship money. And my sister was mad. So she was ready to stage a revolt. And then my mother was the last one to come and to greet me up on stage. And she hugged me. And I remember her saying, I'm so pleased. Parenthetically, she would never say she was proud of us because pride goes before a fall. So she was always very pleased. Mm -hmm. She goes, I'm so pleased. And I remember she whispered in my ear, you know, there's always Missouri. And so she planted the seed right there in the midst of, you know, my pain and dismay, because I was by that time a veterinary student at the University of Missouri. Mm. And so because I was in school in the state of Missouri, I was eligible to compete in the Miss Missouri system. But I wasn't trying to hear that right then. (laughs) You know, I was just, you know, upset and dumbfounded. And finally, you know, stage lights go off. We make our way back to the hotel. And it was our ritual that we would all get together and go out to eat. And I told them all to stay in the lobby. I needed to be alone. And I went up to my hotel room by myself. And I remember when I got off the elevator and I was in that hallway, it was the first time I was by myself since not winning Miss Arkansas. And I started walking toward my door. For whatever reason, it was like, way down the hallway and with every step it became harder and harder to hold the cry in and I remember I began to kind of moan because I, I just couldn't hold it in I was just, I just kept saying wait till you get in your room wait till you get in your room and I finally got to my door turned the lock and literally fell inside my room the door closed behind me and I began to sob in a fetal position on the floor in the entryway of my room harder than I had ever cried in my life. Mm. You know, still full evening gown, big, you know, hairsprayed aquanet hair, full war paint makeup and sobbed like a baby. I don't know if you ever cried this hard as a child, but it was the cry that was so hard that it was hard to catch your breath, you know? Exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, right, right, right. Yeah, I you, did that. <laughs> you know, and yeah. I just, ah, you know, I just wailed. And mm. then finally, once I got, you know, the torrent of that out, I just began to say, God, I don't understand. I don't understand. Why did you make me do this? I only did this because I thought this was what you wanted me to do. I wouldn't have done this if I'd known that, you know. And I just began to lament. I didn't even know what lamenting was then. But I just lament. How could this happen, God? And I cried until literally I dehydrated my body. And so finally, I just lay there silent and just spent on the floor because I just I couldn't cry anymore. And in that silence... I heard in my heart, Debbie, I'm faithful. Now get up. Mm. And I pulled myself up off that floor and made my way to the bathroom and washed my face and combed out my hair and I put on some sweat. So I went down and I, you know, I binged ate something with my family. And I didn't know what was going to happen next, but I knew that God was faithful. Mm. And I spent time after that 
uh, in prayer and fasting because I didn't want to miss it. I didn't want to go through that again. I said, Lord, what do you want me to do? And he reminded me of what my mother had said on that stage. There's always Missouri. There's always Missouri. So when I went back to school that fall as a third-year student in veterinary school, I researched, found the local Miss Missouri pageant, Miss Columbia, entered and won that. That took me to the Miss Missouri pageant the next summer, entered and won that. And that's how I went to the Miss America pageant. When we come back, we'll not only hear how Dr. Turner Bell won Miss America, but discovered the truth behind the saying, heavy is the head that wears the crown. That's coming next on Where You're From. This episode is brought to you by Church Law and Tax. Church Law and Tax understands the realities of church work, helping thousands of churches stay informed and get equipped with comprehensive resources on legal, tax, financial, and risk management matters. Do you have a question on housing allowance? Need information on selecting church insurance? Looking for insights on what is or isn't unrelated business income? Or how about some guidance on how to properly receive charitable contributions? ChurchLawAndTax.com equips you for success with access to the most respected and knowledgeable attorneys, accountants, financial advisors, and risk managers guiding churches today. Get the practical information and timely coverage you need to keep your church up to date and lead your ministry with confidence. Join ChurchLawAndTax.com today. Now let's get back into our conversation with Dr. Debbie Turner-Bell on where you're from. Wow. So that moment, looking back, how would you describe this turning point of being on that floor, sobbing, and hearing that voice? What, what do you think it did in you that would then cause you to say, I'm going to try again? It took my faith to another level. It took it to what I would call courageous faith. I'd had faith all those years. I grew up in a household of faith, but I had faith for things that I didn't lose and get disappointed about. You know, it's easy to trust God when things are going all right, Mm. you know, but when you have a gut wrenching setback and then try to come back from that, that's a different kind of faith. Mm. You know, when someone has faced abuse violence, untimely death, inequities and injustice, and then make a decision to step out on the faithfulness of God. That's what I call courageous faith. When you don't, you don't know if you're capable of making the step. You don't know what's going to happen when you make that step, but you know God is faithful. So you do it anyway, with every fiber of your being screaming, I don't want to do this. I'm afraid of this. This is going to hurt me again, but you do it anyway. That's what I believe is courageous faith. So for me, the transformation that night was whatever was coming next was going to be because God did it in me and through me. It no longer had anything to do with Debbie Turner. Mm. One word that comes to mind is this aspect of consecration. Like, it's one thing to have enough faith to believe that God can allow you to win something or that your prayers will manifest in answered 
prayer. Yes. It's another thing to just trust God for you, for your purpose, for your identity, for everything. And just say, I'm just stepping in the will of the one who brings me here. And whatever happens, it is well with my soul. Exactly right, Rasul. I like to put it like this. I was like, I no longer had a stake in the claim. Mm. You know, this was no longer about me and my motivations or my education, which is a very valiant motivation. It was no longer about any of that. You hit the nail on the head with the word consecration. That is a place of intimacy and relationship with the Lord that defies human understanding. It's that place, though you may slay me, God, I'm still going to trust you because you are holy and you are worthy. And when we get to that place of humility and that place of surrender, that's when the Spirit of God can consecrate us and can bring us into total holiness to where now we're set apart for the purposes of God, not for our purposes, as admirable as they may be. Mm. All right. So now you're coming in with a whole new mindset, a new attitude, and you're now at the Miss America pageant. What was that like? And what was your mindset going into this competition? Yes. So a week before I was to leave for Atlantic City, I went home to see my mom and uh, went to Bible study with her and got prayed over and all of that. And I remember saying to the Lord, God, I've done everything I know to do to be prepared for this. I put it in your hands and I leave it for you to do what only you can do. And I let it go. Hmm. And I just had a good time. I didn't think about winning. I put the work in. I put the prayer in. So I didn't really feel the pressure of competition until the final night. And so if you've ever watched the Miss America pageant, nobody knows who's in the top 10, including the contestants, until it's announced on live TV, except for the judges. And so when it was announced, I was the second to a last name called to be in the top 10. That's when it hit me. And then finally, when we get to the end of the evening, it took them a little time to do the tabulations. Mm. And that was the first moment that I had really just to reflect. And I remember standing on stage And I just began to thank God. Hmm. It's going to make me cry thinking about it. And I thank God for my mother who would sew my outfits because we couldn't afford to buy them. And I thank God for her friends who just donated their time to help get me ready. And a ballet teacher by the name of Sylvia Richards who helped me with my walking and posture and poise. And I just began to thank God. And and I said, God, I don't know what's going to happen in a few minutes. But I thank you. I thank you for this this privilege of being up on this stage. And I can't believe, like 33 years later, it, it still hits me. Um, but I'm so grateful because I was just a little country girl from Arkansas. And here I was on the Miss America stage. And they come out of the commercial and begin to call those runners up. And it was that year where they called the two last finalists out together. So it was me and Miss Marilyn, Virginia Cha, and one of us would be the first runner up and the other would be the winner. And over those last seven years, it took me seven years, 11 tries in two different states to win a state pageant and be standing on that stage in that moment. And I had been first runner up many times and I was prepared for it. I knew how to play that role. And I remember standing there and I said, God, your will be done. 
if it whatever your will is, that's what I want. And Gary Collins said, ladies and gentlemen, your first runner up is, of course, there was that pregnant pause. And then Miss Marilyn, Virginia Chaw. So it is pageant etiquette hug and congratulate someone who's just been awarded something. So I reflexively turned toward her and hugged her because she just got first runner up to Miss America. I was genuinely happy for her. In the middle of that hug, it hit me. That means you won, dummy. (laughs) (laughs) And you can see it on tape. The nature of my hug changes. And I began to just laugh, you know, and my shoulders were heaving. I didn't cry in that moment. I was just happy. And then you hear Gary Collins say, ladies and gentlemen, please greet your new Miss America, Debbie Turner. And Gretchen Carlson put the crown on my head. And, you know, I remember uh, Gary Collins saying, Miss America, greet your audience. And I turned to him and I thanked him and I began to walk down that iconic runway in Atlantic City, which was a full city block long. Mm. It's a long runway. I'll never forget that feeling. I don't know how to explain it. I was thrilled. I was relieved. But more than anything, I was just grateful because mm. I knew it was God. It had nothing to do with me. Wow. I mean, I get goosebumps just knowing all that went through, like you said, two states all these competitions, all the work, the sewing outfits, the memorizing state facts about yeah. birds and insects <laughs> yes. to finally culminate in this moment. And then there's this other part that it's also historic mm-hmm. with you being the, the second Black Miss America to win it. Yes. So tell me about that part and what the significance of that was to you. Yeah. So, you know, there was always in Arkansas... And even in Missouri, to an extent, this undercurrent of what does the fact that I'm a person of color, I'm an African-American, have to do with not being able to win the Miss Arkansas pageant? Mm -hmm. There was always that undercurrent. My sister, you know, saying, these white judges not ready for your black face. Mm -hmm. So she was just out there with it. Right. (laughs) And I was a little more sanguine, maybe, about it. And like, well, it's going to be whatever it's going to be. So when Vanessa Williams was the first African-American to win the Miss America pageant, she won it in 83. Her title was 84. That was transformative for all the little brown girls who watched the pageant Mm -hmm. because now the ceiling had been broken Mm -hmm. and it became possible. But then she was the first Miss America to have to give up her title. And so she stepped down. Her first runner up was also African-American. So Suzette Charles became technically the second a person of color to be Miss America. Then six years later, I come along. So I was the second black woman to win the pageant. And I felt the expectations of the African-American community upon me because after Vanessa, it was like everyone was holding their breath. Mm. You know, what skeleton was in my closet? What trip up am I going to make? And I felt the expectation of the African-American community to be the black Miss America. Mm. And I'm very proud of my heritage and my ethnicity and my ancestry. I also knew that I was Miss America, that I was to represent the entire country, not just one segment of the population. And I was pretty adamant about that. And that didn't make some members of the African-American community happy. And I got criticized for that because I refused to be just the black Miss America. Mm -hmm. 
So I had to sort of walk this fine line of representing my community, making my community proud, but not ostracizing the whole rest of the nation in doing that. And that was a tough position for a young girl. I wasn't prepared for it. That is such a fine line to have to, on a one end, have all the hopes and dreams of, you know, these little brown girls who are like, yay, somebody looks like me. And you want to encourage and Absolutely. and nurture that. And yet at the same time, you're not Miss Black America, you're Miss America. So Right. You, and you, and there is a Miss Black America. Right. That's a thing. You know, right. so I'm not her. And so I tripped up on that immediately. Mm-hmm. The first thing that Miss America does after she wins, she goes into her first press conference. Particularly back then, there were dozens of members of the media from around the world. Because at that time in 1989, the Miss America pageant was the second highest rated live telecast Mm. in the country, only behind the Super Bowl. So there were, I believe, 35 million people that watched Mm. when I won. The head of the pageant at the time walked me into the press area. And as we were walking, he says, we don't tell you what to say. You can answer questions if you want to. You don't have to answer questions. It's totally up to you. He goes, just be aware that what you say can and will be held against you. And I thought he was joking. I remember laughing. (laughs) Little did I know (laughs) how prophetic that was, because I walk right into the press conference. At first two questions I expected, how did I feel? What was I thinking as I walked down the runway? Fielded those. I had practiced those. I knew what I was going to say. The third one I wasn't prepared for. How does it feel to be a role model for little black girls around the country? And it tripped me up because I wasn't thinking about the color of my skin in that moment. And I expressed that. And I said, well, being black is just a part of who I am. And I went on to say, you know, I'm, I'm a scientist. I'm a veterinary student. I'm a Christian. I'm a musician. You know, listed all these things that I identify as. And being black is just a part of that. Well, I was misquoted the next day in a major newspaper headline that said, I said, being black is the least of who I am. Mm-hmm. Well, you can imagine what furor. Uh-huh. That created in the black community. So I spent the whole year explaining it and trying to fix it because of that one misstep. But I learned my lesson quickly Mm -hmm. and I didn't make that mistake again. The other thing that you talk about in the book and I think is unexpected is the highs and lows of that year of those Mm -hmm. 365 days Mm -hmm. of being Miss America. Right. One would think it's just puppy dogs and rainbows, right? (laughs) But there were some challenges. So tell us a little bit about the highs and the lows of that. Yeah, I mean, it's a great year. You know, I got to meet anybody who was anybody, all the celebrities, all the big elected officials. You know, I met the president in the White House. I was on some award shows. I got to present at the Stellar Awards and the Image Awards. And, you know, I was on the David Letterman show and all the morning talk shows, all of that. So a lot of glamour. And back in those days, I traveled first class. Stretch limousines aren't much of a thing anymore, but I always traveled by police escorted stretch limousines, so never had to stop at the stoplights, stayed in the presidential suites at all the hotels. You know, it was very glamorous. But it was one of the hardest years of my life because it was a tough job. Always had to be on, Mm. always had to be nice. I always had to live up to a standard of being Miss America. So I had to look good everywhere I went. And that can be taxing, Mm -hmm. especially for some of us who are introverts. And Mm. people get surprised, but I'm an introvert. And to push through that and be Miss America all year long was really hard. 
and the travel schedule. Hmm. I flew 20,000 air miles a month. Wow. I was in and out of a city every 18 to 36 hours, and I worked seven days a week, 48 weeks out of that year. Hmm. So it just physically was taxing, you know, from speeches to appearances to interviews to signing autographs to kissing babies to speaking to students. You know, it was just one thing after another. I remember I had appearances in four different states across the country mm. in one day. Wow. Yeah, one yeah, day. it was crazy. In yeah. one day. So that takes its toll. And so it's some of the loneliest times of my life. And I was living a life that nobody in my life could understand. Mm. They were just excited, like, oh, you're Miss America. Nothing could be wrong. And it was hard. And, you know, sometimes not everybody liked the Black Miss America, you know. So sometimes I dealt with open hostility, Mm. uh, but still had to be Miss America. So it took its toll and probably started maybe halfway into my year where it really began to wear on me. But certainly by the time I gave up the title and went back to school to finish my education, I was in a full-blown depression. Mm. And I didn't know it at the time. But I went back to school when I graduated and was out in the world on my own. I went right back to speaking and traveling almost as much as I had been as Miss America. And I hit a wall. I hit a point where I woke up one morning and I did not want to get out of bed. Mm. I just I felt paralyzed. And I hated my life. I felt I had the imposter syndrome on steroids that, you know, people didn't really know who I was. And if they found out, they would hate me. And I would spend days in the bed Mm. eating and sleeping and watching TV and thinking, I don't know how I'm going to get out of this. And uh, thankfully, my mother was a counselor by trade and I believed in counseling. And so I went and got myself some counseling. And, you know, through talk therapy and prayer, was able to dig my way out of that hole and recognize it as depression. You know, I thought it was a character flaw. Why can't I motivate myself and pull myself up, you know? And I just couldn't. And so I'm so grateful for the counseling at Mm. that time that helped pull me through that. And then not long after that, my mother died and didn't expect that. You know, this powerful woman of God dying unexpectedly. And so... There is no shame in getting help, Mm. getting counseling. Yes, pray, but take your medicine and get your counseling and then let God do the work the way he wants to do it. Yeah, there was so much there about having the courage to get help and that there's a a certain type of faith it takes to say and admit, I'm not okay. Mm -hmm. I think especially when other people look at your life and they go, Yes. You're living the dream. You're Miss America. Like literally there's a title for who you are that everybody <laughs> knows, right? Yeah. That struggle is real. And it doesn't matter what position that someone has on the stats on the outside. Right. What we go through, each heart knows its own bitterness. I like that. Amen. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, at the time, just as you said, you know, my friends was like, ah, you're Miss America. What you complaining about? Right. Right. They just couldn't imagine that I'd be struggling inside, which would then drive me more and more inward to think, you know, well, what's wrong with me and to be embarrassed about it. And here's the thing. I mean. If you read some Psalms with each one where he laments, you know, how long, God, Mm. how long are you going to forsake me? And I am dung and I'm, you know, less than that. And then he would say, but your faithfulness. Mm. Right. So there is nothing wrong with admitting we're not doing well. We need help. 
you know, we're struggling. Yeah. And to reach out for that help mm. and allow God to use whatever he wants to use mm. to work healing in yeah. you. And that might be counseling. Yes. That might be medication. Yeah. It might be a better diet. It might be exercise. It might be more sleep. You know, it might be fasting and praying. But we have to admit, I can't do this by myself. And the other thing, and I so appreciated you naming this and calling this out in your book, but that David does like in Psalm 13, where he asks the question, how long, O Lord, yes. will you forget me forever? Not yes. have you forgotten me, but yeah. how long are you going to continue to forget me? Right. Like this, right. this aspect of questioning and, and wrestling. And you really deal with that head on when you talk about the grief that you experience with your mother, who was this incredible person in your life. And then suddenly going and being no longer present with you. Tell me, how did you get out of that part of it, right? That sense of grief that you had. Yeah, a lot of prayer, a lot of counseling, a lot of journaling, quite Mm. frankly. yeah. My mother, as I have said before, was a force of nature. She was bigger than life to me. Mm. I really did think she was invincible. So when she was diagnosed with cancer, I knew for sure God was going to heal her. Mm. How could he not? Her Mm. faith was so strong and she went through the treatment, got the radiation, but she had waited so long to go to the doctor that the cancer was so big and so involved that the intensity of the radiation not only damaged the cancer cells, but it damaged the healthy cells around her. Because the radiation had done such damage to her internal organs, the doctors wanted to do another surgery Mm -hmm. to try to fix some of that. And I'd gone with her to that appointment and her surgeon was very optimistic. And, you know, Miss Turner, you're going to be fine. People get this done all the time. It's a process. You'll get through it. So I drove her back to Jonesboro and she was, you know, as optimistic as I had seen her during that journey. And so I decided to go home a couple of days early because I'd planned on staying till Friday. This was a Wednesday to get prepared because her pre-ops were the following Monday. I said, my mama, go home. I lived in St. Louis at the time, take care of a few things. And I said, I'll be back Monday to take you back. And we thought everything was going to be fine. Well, I got a phone call from my mom's best friend on Sunday. She'd gone to check on my mother and there was no answer. So she called the police. They broke in and um, she had passed away. And it was a gut check. I mean, it was a blow that I didn't see coming. And I remember getting the news. I was getting ready for this drive back to Jonesboro when the phone call came. And I told Dorothy, my mom's friend, I'm not at home. Let me get home. I'll call you back. And I said to her, Dorothy, did you lay hands on her and pray that God raise her from the dead? That's how high my faith was. Mm -hmm. That's the kind of faith my mother had instilled in me. Mm -hmm. And she's like, no, Debbie. And I said, you go back and you lay hands on my mother and you call her back to life. Mm -hmm. I'm going to drive home and I'll call you back. And I can't even remember how I made it home, but I made it home, called back, fully expecting for Dorothy to say, oh, she's back. Mm -hmm. And called Dorothy and I said, what happened? And she said, Debbie, she's gone. And again, it was that fall on the floor, fetal position, just primal wail, (laughs) you know, uh, like an animal wounded kind of cry. Because I just didn't expect it. I thought God was going to heal her. Mm. And that made me mad at God. 
I didn't doubt his existence. You know, some people go through right. catastrophic events and they say, well, there must not be a God if this happened. I knew there was a God. I just didn't like him. Mm. I didn't like his ways. I'm like, if this is how you treat your ministers, if this is how you treat people that sacrifice their life for you, I don't want anything to do with you. But my mother had raised me to trust God no matter what. Mm. You know, and after a few days of being mad, I realized I had no other coping mechanisms but prayer and faith. And so I began to pray and I'm like, I'm mad at you. I don't understand you. This is not fair. And I just begin, just as David does, that how long will you forsake me? I poured all of that out and I was authentically raw before God. And I said, I don't understand this. And so I really believe to go back to your question, Rasul, what got me through that period was being just raw and unflinchingly honest with God. And I prayed and I raged and I cried and I begged, but I never stopped communicating Mm. with him. And after my mom's homegoing celebration, because that's what we call them in our community. That's right. It's not a funeral. That's right. You know, after the homegoing celebration, I got myself right back into counseling Mm. and processed it with a Holy Spirit filled counselor. Mm. And we prayed and we walked through scripture and she gave me writing assignments and I journaled. And step by step, I slowly healed. Mm. And when I say slowly, it took probably five years for me to be able to even talk about my mom mm. without dissolving in tears. Mm. So it was a process and it was work, but I just took it one step at a time. And I can tell you now, 26 years later, that God is indeed faithful mm. and he will bring you through it, but you have to go through it. You can't avoid it. You can't yeah. go around it, under it, over it. You have to go through it and just keep moving. Mm. And I'm living witness that there is light and joy and deliverance on the other side. Amen. You know, at the end of the book, you talk about this metaphor of a marathon. Mm-hmm. What does the process of preparing for a marathon versus a sprint teach us about courageous faith? Ooh, I love that question. Yes, in my day, I've run six marathons. I ran them over the course of three years, which I don't recommend (laughs) because I blew my knees out doing that. The process of running a marathon taught me a couple of really important things about faith. Number one is running a marathon, just like life, is about consistency. Mm -hmm. It's not having good days or great days every once in a while. And as it relates to our relationship with God, it's not about, you know, praying consistently for a week and then you don't pray again for six months. It's about the consistency. Mm -hmm. Really training for a marathon is that consistency, putting those miles in every day, no matter whether you want to or not, whether it's raining or cold or hot, whatever it is, you do it consistently. And that that is where victories are won. Number two is a persistence. I talk about, you know, some of my experiences in marathons. In my very first one, I got cramps, like these catastrophic, I can't run cramps. And I called a dear friend of mine who was a track star in his day and track coach at that time. And he said, whatever you do, don't stop moving. Mm -hmm. And I said, but I can't run. He goes, "Okay, then just walk, but don't stop moving. And so I ended up walking the next 10 miles because every time I tried to run, the cramps would come back. So I learned as it relates to life and faith is we can't stop. 
You know, we might not be able to run in that season, but walk. And if you can't walk, crawl. If you can't crawl, get on the floor and roll. But just keep moving. Don't stop. Because really stopping is going backwards. Mm. It's not staying stationary because life keeps moving forward. And so with courageous faith, we must be consistent. We must keep moving forward. And then finally, it doesn't have to be pretty. It doesn't have to be a photo finish. But we have to keep going until we get to the finish line. Mm. And for a believer, of course, that finish line is seeing Jesus face to face. But no race is ever won at the 90 meter point. If you're going to win a 100 meter race, you got to go the full 100 meters. You can be in first place at 50 meters. You can be in first place at 95 meters. But if you stop, you've lost. We have to finish the race and go across the finish line. I'm grateful for Dr. Debbie Turner Bell's realness about the obstacles she's overcome in running her marathon of faith. May we all have the courage to finish the race and finish it well. This is where you're from. I'm Russell Berry. And remember, it's not just about where you're at. It's also about where you're from. This show was produced by Daniel Ryan Day, Ryan Clevenger, Mary Jo Clark, and Jade Gussman, and was engineered by Gabrielle Boward and Kevin Burgess. I also want to thank Joyce and Chris Cynthia for their help in supporting and promoting where you're from. Thanks, y'all. Where You're From is part of the Voices Collection from Our Daily Bread Ministries. This episode was brought to you in part. By the Lord of Spirits podcast, many Christians yearn to break free of the influence of secular materialism and to understand the union of the seen and unseen worlds as made by God. What is the spiritual world like? Tune in wherever you get your podcasts.